Hey folks, thanks for joining us for the first episode of 2021. I want you to check out some of the new features that we're offering on our Patreon account. All right, let's get started. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. In today's episode, we will look at Martin Heidegger's 1929 inaugural lecture at Freiburg University entitled, What is Metaphysics? This lecture is considered to be a starting point of sorts in a series of works which span his being and time and the series of writings understood as the later Heidegger. The question in focus is, what does Heidegger mean by metaphysics? We will also explore the extended metaphysical and ethical implications of that question as they are laid out in the text. Joining me today are Matt, Will, and Adam. So let's begin. Let's take a look. What is happening in this text? One thing that is crucial to note when addressing the way in which Heidegger approaches metaphysics here is to begin with where one is situated when one asks a question. When when one asks a fundamental question at the metaphysical level, one is also asking a question that one themselves is involved in. Part of the issue here is one that's present in other works in Heidegger, particularly uh, the early pages of Being and Time, where Heidegger is trying to situate sort of a, a regional and fundamental ontology, and he's going to do fundamental ontology, right? Um, where he's going to attempt to establish a sort of grounding upon which we can then have those discussions about exactness uh, that that sort of the conventional sciences that, say, Edmund Husserl was trying to to submit sort of phenomenology to. uh, You know, Edmund Husserl is who who Heidegger uh, studied under, I I believe, being in time is dedicated to him. So I think one place uh, to, to start is to first... Uh, first discuss the way in which the question about nothing unfolds and how that process can begin to expose both being with a capital B and how both the nothing and the being which surpasses beings can uh, begin to lay out a metaphysics. Just to uh, build on that a bit, yeah, the the methodology of of this text is uh, it generates itself really from Heidegger's interactions with with Manuel Kant in the um, Sort of about a few months before this, primarily around a conference in Davos, which was quite famous about where Heidegger articulated his reading of Kant as actually doing it metaphysics. But just to see, what, just to simplify what Heidegger gets from Kant here, it's the notion that in order to account uh, for a set of metaphys- metaphysical ideas, to ask these questions of metaphysics, we must also focus on not only the question of being and of, of beings that exist, but also the existence and the being of the very thing that can call this thing into question. How is it possible ontologically that there is a being to which metaphysics is a problem? And if we explore the questioning, then we find something about the being of, of the questioner itself. From that extent, we can actually get something about being as a whole, because we get this fundamental element of being that grounds the ability for us to make questions about it. So the question, what is metaphysics, is also a metaphysics of what it means to be able to ask this question in in the first place. Yeah, and I think the first problem is the problem of, you know, nothing, right? The what what Heidegger writes at the very beginning is uh science wants to know nothing or the sciences want to know nothing about nothing. Um and it's from sort of that position 
that we can begin to it you know the, the one thing that Heidegger does that I think is interesting is rather than attempting to kind of throw in with the age-old debates of you know metaphysics or uh, you know standard ethical quandaries and so on he's going to attempt to sort of ask a question that hasn't been asked yet but is underwriting all of these sort of uh, philosophical discourses anyway. And the way that he is going to do it is by approaching sort of um, this question of of nothing, the nothing that nonetheless is, right? So it, it's, this, it's this problematization of the word is, right, that haunts, uh, that ends up haunting uh, philosophy even into, uh, into the time of Derrida, right? Derrida still puts is under erasure. Uh, in of grammatology and so on, because the, there he still believes that there is no fundamental answer. So at least at that level, I think it it starts at the question of of uh, nothing and its relation to being. So can you maybe talk about the way in which, or somebody uh, can talk about the way in which the relation between the nothing, the questioner, and the notion of being unfolds to sort of expose these relationships. Maybe one way of sort of taking a, start, a stab at that, and I think Craig will have something to say there as well, um, is that one of one of the common themes, both in this text and in Being in Time, and in, frankly in all of Heidegger's work, is this notion that there's something which we've forgotten, right? Um, something that's become become obscured or presupposed or failed. We failed to properly, fully investigate and understand. Um, and, you know, the central one, of course, for Heidegger is, um, the question of being, you know, of capital B being, um, rather than individual beings in themselves. Um, and that's also where you get the, uh, some of the sort of obscurity or difficulty of his language. Um, and this, to bring us back, one of the reasons we, one of the ways in which this shows up in this essay, I think, is that when Heidegger wants us to be able to talk about the nothing, um, anything, in particular, we have to say about it um, ends up something like the form "nothingness is X," right? Which, of course, Im- immediately creates a kind of contra- logical contradiction there, right? Um, and, and and it's the "is," it's the "is" that's, that's, that's creating these problems um, in the first place, and that's why he's so concerned with this question of being um, at all. Um, but it also spurs him on in this essay to say. And this is one of the things, like in a way, I quite like about Heidegger is that he says, even if we grant that there's going to there's some sort of at least surface level logical problem with asking a, a question which has a form of something like, um, "What is the nothing?" Um, let's just pursue this for a bit and see where it takes us. Right? Maybe we end up with nothing, which would make sense given we're pursuing nothing. Um, but let's see where, where it takes us. Right? Um, and in that case, uh, maybe this is one of the, you know, a good way of explaining some, you know, one, one key part of um, this essay and much higher work is that if we're going to do that, if we're going to sort of slightly set aside, um, you know, the sort of seeming illog- illogical questioning in the first place, then we need some way of um, uh, 
trying to pursue this question. How do we do it? How do we ask after this thing? And Heidegger, Heidegger says at least two things here, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it here because I know um, Craig Adam had things to say. Firstly, he says, in order to pursue anything, we, we need to have some sort of idea of what it is that we're pursuing in the first place, right? Um, it's impossible to question after that, which we don't already have some sense or understanding of. Um, but he, think, he thinks clearly we do have some sort of understanding, even in a very, you know, base, minimal, um, unsophisticated or unquestioned way, some sort of understanding of nothingness. We use it all the time, right? And so in that case, that sort of gives us a starting point, right? There is at least something which we can pursue despite all these difficulties in the questioning. Um, and the second thing is that that's also how it leads him to consider, in that case, how is it that we seem to have some understanding of nothing? And that's where you later get this discussion of um, anxiety, um, angst, um, and, and so on. Um, but for now, I'll leave it, I'll leave it there because I, I know Adam Craig had things to say before we go too far into it. Oh, no, I think uh, everybody's saying a lot of great things. And I'm just going to put a finer point on what is meant by metaphysical inquiry. That's really what's at stake here in this essay. And Heidegger says very early on that Every metaphysical question encompasses the whole range of metaphysical problems that the problematization of metaphysics presupposes all of its problems, and I would argue its solutions as well. And I think that's a really important point, because later on we will talk about the sort of recurrence of this question, or maybe to use Heidegger's terms, like existing within the question of metaphysics. And the challenge, as he sees it, is that the pursuit of man, of humankind, has been to know at its very basis. And in attempting to find firm grounds for what we understand to be the nature of things that exist, we have pursued science. Right. This seems to be the, the sort of ultimate ambition of man's inquiry. And the thing that has been forgotten is this concept of the nothing, the thing that cannot be known, the thing to which is, is inadequate to describe. What grounds the possibility of even conducting any sort of scientific inquiry, any, any sort of investigation of things? And he asserts that there is a nothing which either interpenetrates or into which things are ensconced that are determinative of, of the things that exist in the world. And I think it's important to point out the way that he views what man is. He, he has a quote here. It says, man, humankind one being among others, pursue science. And in this pursuit, nothing less transpires than the eruption, with an I, uh, by one being called man into the whole of beings, indeed in such a way, and through this eruption breaks open and show what they are and how they are. The eruption that breaks open in its way helps beings above all to themselves. In our attempt to elucidate the nature of things, we must come to terms with, once again, that which grounds that which for him is going to be nothing. I would just want to build on your point a little bit about um, the idea of this, this eruption. And for, for Heidegger, um, man really is, is, is Dasein, is, is the being there. And for him, being there is the question, the sort of thing that has cared about beings, that brings being into question, that orients itself t towards beings and what it is to be a being. You know, the, the being of beings, it gets repetitive talking in Heideggerian language, but <laughs> we, we all got the term. But fundamentally, the, the nothing here is why we are dealing with nothing here is because, for one reason, uh, 
as a metaphysical question, it's literally above the sciences because it's the limit of the sciences because they don't want to talk about nothing. They want to talk about being. So one, it's, it's a limiting factor for science, which is very fruitful to investigate. But two, as, as you said, originally Heidegger thinks that um, every metaphysical question sort of elucidates in all the others because it touches on a fundamental component of being, which all other beings uh, share in their totality. But the disruption is mainly conditioned by the fact of, of questioning. And to be driven to question beings is to have this kind of gap between you and the beings that makes them questionable. This is uh, what he calls transcendence, holding oneself out to this gap. And what this gap is doing is not a gap so much you situate yourself in all the time, but it's this kind of repulsive gap that pushes you away from it and makes everything questionable. It disconnects you from the immediate harmony with, um, with beings. It's immediately a repulsion. And in terms of how we use it in everyday lives, as Matt brought up, the nothing is, is not negation for Heidegger. Uh, negation for Heidegger is, a, is an intellectual operation. It's the operation of, of the not. You know, X is not Y, etc., etc. Differentiates beings. It's, it's what Kant would have called the understanding, is things that separate. You know, the poles of magnet, you understand it by separating out into uh, yeah, positive and negative. There's a really good bit in that chapter that, that Heidegger says. He says it, negation, in a sense, is when we, I think he says this, it's, it's when we, um, we take the abstract concept of um, we take individual things, abstract towards all that is, and kind of n- and remove the particular things, and what we're left with is nothingness. And he thinks that's one, the one way and the wrong way of approaching the question of nothingness. Yes, definitely, because this he this kind of takes negations as, men- as mental operation, it identifies it with the nothing, and sort of makes the concept of the nothing into just a negation of the, to- the totality of beings. He thinks it's the other way around, rather than nothingness coming from the abstraction of all beings through a mental operation of negation. He thinks that our own intelligence that can make these differential negations of not this, not that, arises from a more primordial kind of kind of source, which is the nothing. The nothing is that which repels us into applying our fundamental existence which as Dasein, which is to do the questioning. We're repelled by this nothing, and when we confront it, it's a very anxious experience because it's completely indeterminate. Hard to really think through, but it's just repelling about us this repelling force of nothingness that caused us to think about being as such, because the unifying aspect of, of all beings is that there is not, they are not nothing. There is being there. And that's what makes it so uh, powerful to force into this kind of questioning by, by mode of contrast. Yeah, and, and clearly it relates to sort of this, this fundamental question, which, you know, I think many of us who are interested in philosophy, it's one of, and even those who, who don't necessarily pursue philosophy, in a, you know, in, in a sort of dedicated way, or um, are motivated by it, this fundamental question of why is there something rather than nothing, right? Um, and it's one of the reasons why Heidegger can be so interesting is that I think um, more than almost any other um, philosopher I'm aware of, he really does take these sorts of questions uh, very seriously and tries to get to the bottom of them. And there's this, there's this sort of annoying habit for anyone who's, who has been through sort of academia within sort of philosophy related departments. There's this annoying habit, um, that many sort of professors and lecturers have, which is that they regard the sort of questions that, um, people come into those 
departments with as being sort of misformed or badly worded or, you know, they misunderstand something important. And once they realize this, they'll realize it's not really a problem at all. And this happens sometimes with this question, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Often it'll be eliminated as a kind of category error or, um, a, you know, you haven't properly understood what what being is or what nothingness is or whatever. Uh, nothingness really is just this sort of meaningless concept which doesn't track with any object, whatever, whatever, you know, all these different things. And Heidegger takes, all, takes these kind of line of questioning very seriously and goes down to their root. And that's why I think um, he could be such a uh, powerful thinker on some of these questions. Yeah, I think one thing that's interesting is, is uh, and I'm just going to piggyback off of Matt there, is, you know, in his interview and remarks on Marx, uh, Foucault talks about phenomenological philosophy and argues that he's not really interested in it because it, it takes into account sort of everyday experience and he's more interested in show and uh, Bataille and so on and the limit experience and things like that. But to me, Heidegger's ability to sort of capture the everyday experience and make it uh, evoke wonder is something that's worth taking note of, right? I think the, the line was, uh, it's only sort of when we are exposed to the strangeness of beings that um, that that this wonder or this suspension can occur. Um, it, it's only once we understand the difference between like fear and the Heideggerian formulation of anxiety that we can start to understand Dasein as a moment of fundament, fundamental transcendence, right? Which then underlies existential philosophy, at least in the Sartrean sense. So in many ways, I think the everydayness uh, is fundamental to uh, uh, fundamental ontology, to, to this foundational grounding uh, work. And I, I think that, uh, Matt, you're right to say that these questions are not sort of sophomoric or the indicator of sort of a neophyte they're the fundamental questions that uh philosophy has to deal with and it's clear at least in heidegger that up until that point there's really not been many adequate answers yeah and it, it, one of the things i like about it i mean i'm i'm only a sort of a, an amateur reader of heidegger i've never had to or really had much of a chance to study him probably at university or anything. But um, one of the things I really, I've always really appreciated when I have read him um, is that sort of um, that attunement to the importance of our everyday experience of the world and um, what follows from that. I mean, it's central to his actual, to his philosophical methodology, right? In, in, in being in time, the only way in which, the only reason it's possible to even answer or ask the question of what is being. Um, uh, firstly, is that we are the kind of beings for whom uh, that question is is an issue for us, right? So I'm not going to go in too much into that, but basically there's a kind of worry that all of us have to some degree or another, and which arises at certain points in our life, but sometimes we forget about, you know, we're distracted, too distracted to think about, which is, you know, um, firstly, why is there something rather than nothing? Uh, how does, you know, one day we're all going to die. How does that relate to my life and what it means and what does it mean for me and so on? Um, 
And so we can ask these questions. And in a sense, we're almost um, almost forced to just by the nature of the kind of things that that we are. Um, and it's exactly through our our it's almost everyday experience of the world that we're able to at least pursue that question, right? It, and it's through understanding um, both how we ordinarily experience the world and through these moments where something different breaks through that we can investigate the question of being for Heidegger. And that's where, and I'll let, I think Adam has something to say about this, in this essay in particular, um, Heidegger thinks that it's really important we pay attention to, um, well, his first example is boredom. Um, maybe we can talk about that. Um, but more importantly for him is um, this sort of mood of um, anxiety. And when we really have those moments of anxiety or those moods of anxiety, what it is about those which, uh, what it is those those moods or moments reveal to us about uh, being or the world. In this essay, uh, one of the words that's used quite a lot is the idea of being attuned uh, to beings uh, as a whole. And the German word is Stimmung, which is um, which is voice, but also the kind of it's also used in a sense of uh, being like in alignment. So if you say I agree, I stimmers, I I speak with it. And Heidegger articulates this notion of, of the Stimmung in also in by way of a, a mood, which uh, the Germans are given in this text. But <laughs> but a mood is essentially a yeah, fundamental orientation of colouring of how you orient yourself towards being. And questioning is, is only one mode of this I, I think Heidegger but from him he gives such an importance to, to, to the questioning and to attunement so there's a, I think Heidegger is a fundamental attunement towards philosophy which I'm not sure is I don't agree is as universal as, as he fundamentally think, uh, thinks it is but there is almost in every case uh, uh, an observation that humans are very generally concerned about their own death I don't know what sort of normative implications he would draw out from this, but it'd be quite interesting. If we want to talk about Heidegger's ethics, I think it's always important to to return to the starting point, which is that the kind of language and discourse that science engages with is not going to be adequate to approach the inquiry that he is favoring here. The challenge present to Heidegger's intention to describe the nothing is a matter of formulating a discourse which aims at saying what the nothing is or how it is or what it does while understanding that there's a certain failure imminent to any attempt at doing so. And when you look at the later Heidegger, he's going to talk about the way that that language works. Um, it actually is akin to uh, what Deleuze and Gattari say about the tensor in Kafka, if, if folks are familiar with that. In the same way, there's a kind of orientation that can be taken towards the nothing in a different usage of language or different kinds of descriptions, different kinds of poiesis, cultivating the kinds of activities that bring us in attunement with the nothing. Yeah, and I'm wondering how many other modes we're going to get of this kind of attunement towards being, and in being in time, he also calls it care. There's, there's a cognitive dimension to the, to um, the sign um, here that in terms of providing any normative conclusion from this thesis alone, there is some quite worrying aspects to this, you know, in terms of fund framing uh, humanity or the individual, the being that has uh, a particular worth for Heidegger in terms of its ability to question and ask questions. And obviously, the cognitive biases and the ableist implications could be, well, a, a, pretty, a pretty striking if we extend that much. But the other question of further orientations of of being, I mean, care in relation to the world and being in the world is 
I don't I don't know to the extent in which he would link that purely to cognitive faculties. That's just a worry I was thinking of, and I was thinking of, yeah, if we reduce everyone the existence to the, the questioning, is this questioning so cognitive and therefore particularly within a certain uh, incredibly ableist kind of, um, of of cognitive language of mapping of what it means to have the the, the, the properly thinking oriented attunement. But the thing is, I, I think that haunts the rationalists. Um, I think it haunts Kant in particular, right? Where a moral being is a being who can form a very particular kind of maxim in a very particular kind of relationship, right? Where does that leave individuals who, who uh, you know, possess or express different modes of being, right? Um, and maybe one way to to rescue this framework and, you know, working in the philosophy of the body and philosophy of disability, it's always interesting to, to ask these questions. And sometimes what they can do is they can become sort of discussion black holes, right? Because they, they haunt everything. At least that's my position on disability, uh, is that it, as soon as the body enters into it, or as soon as a phenomenological relationship enters into it, there are all of these other implications. But I, I, one thing I do like uh, here is that experience, at least in this essay, is something that's seen as sort of a shadowy, kind of murky thing, right? It's always a fragmented being. Um, it, you know, it's it's no matter how how shadowy or fragmented it is, we always engage with these things as a whole, even if we don't um, secure them that way. So I think that allows for different modes of being, right? For different things to be disclosed at different times and so on. Um, but I, I think attunement is interesting because I, it, he does say that it's sort of the basic occurrence of the Daw sign, but then doesn't spend a ton of time <laughs> on it and spends much more time discussing um, discussing anxiety. Uh, and of course, if you want an elucidation, you can. Uh, I, I think I don't, yeah, it's it's translated as care. It's sort of uh, concern, right? It's the way we approach these things. You can sort of. Uh, see what it, it, your sort of being has a particular fixation over or what its focus is and so on. Um, but I, I like Heidegger's notion of, um, of, you know, fragmented being in the everyday experience, right? You know, it's no, no matter how fragmented our, our everyday experience may be, we always deal with beings as a sort of unity. Um, and that unity can represent itself to us phenomenologically in varying ways. I don't think there's a singular mode of, of, of being, or at least I, I hope not. Um, so that, that would be my, my response to, that would be my, my crypt theory response to that. I want to take another pass at the entirety of the theory. I think the, the starting point that I want to take is the, the infamous line, you know, which Carnap goes after is the nothing is the complete negation of the totality of beings, which I think in some other places is translated as the nothing nothings, right? I think we should take Heidegger in good faith here and make an attempt to understand what it is he's getting at. And I think there's a series of steps that we, we can approach. First of all, there's there's at least three terms on the field right now. One, which is Dasein, or, or being with a capital being, that being there. The other term is nothing. And then there's also beings, the whole field of beings within these sort of grander sphere of being itself, being with a capital B. 
And we need to know how it is that Heidegger throws all these things together. He says, the nothing is the complete negation of the totality of beings. Does not this characterization of the nothing ultimately provide an indication of the direction from which alone the nothing can come to meet us? The totality of beings must be given in advance so as to be able to fall prey straight away to negation, another term, right, in which the nothing itself would then be manifest. So what Heidegger is saying, with, and I'm breezing by a few details here, is that the idea of Dasein, the idea of nothing, they are given mutually. It's from there that we, as beings, as singular individual beings, we cannot embrace the totality of Dasein on its own. We understand beings how? As a relation of other beings in the world. But what he's saying is that ensconced within this greater being with a capital B, the whole thing is informed by the notion of nothing which, which undergirds it, which might not even be the right word, but we'll just use that for the time being. And he uses this term nihilation, which actually in the Krell translation here, he opposes later to the notion of negation, but it's not a direct opposition. He's, he's just saying that how can we understand particular negations in the field of given beings? Well, it's through this concept of nihilation that comes from the nothing. So the nihilation of the totality is immediately manifest in the givens of the totality. So, Dasein and the nothing, just like being boom, foisted into the universe all at once, the absolute totality of Dasein is immediately negated or annihilated by the nothing. How do we understand it, though? Well, it's us as being thrown into this. And later in being in time, you get this term thrownness. Here we are, we experience this immediate annihilation of being as particularized beings. And we can imagine, as, as Heidegger says, the formal concept of the nothingness, that's only a representation of the nothing itself, however it is occurring, right? So philosophically or, you know, intellectually, we, we can have that conception, but it's nothing like the way the nothing actually occurs. And so we cannot comprehend the absolute whole of beings as the single being. However, beings annihilation, one of the ways that Heidegger talks about this later on is as a coming to pass. And so in our everyday sort of clinging to being as a particular being, like being busying ourselves with, with this and that, we tend to ignore, or it, it doesn't appear as readily to us, this notion of this experience or this persistent tingle of anxiety, this sort of low ebb of this sort of skimming off of being into the nothing, which is itself the sort of base condition through which we can understand ourselves as beings and, and that we can at least asymptotically brush by the, the notion of the totality of design and, and the nothing. So this brings us back to the fundamental mood of anxiety. But one of the things that I want to clear up and that Heidegger is, is very clear about is there are forms of nihilation that we experience in a very real way in our lives. Um, he, he brings some of them up. The notion of failure, the notion of rebuke, uh, the notion of loss, experiencing real losses in our lives. And those things may in some way, shape, or form instantiate this notion of anxiety, but they aren't anxiety in and of themselves. And it's only through this attunement to anxiety, angst, I think is the translation. And the last important question is, what is the practical dimension of attunement? Attunement involves an embodiment. It involves a, a, a positioning, an attitude, a, a sort of being towards death, a being towards the possibility of our annihilation. 
that then comes back to us as a form of revealing that simultaneously conceals. But we can get into that maybe in a different Heidegger discussion. But Matt, I know you wanted to address the allegation that Heidegger was an existentialist. This is something that I, I don't think anyone will ever be able to really convince me of, which is that, um, you know, after uh, Sartre wrote uh, Being and Nothingness, um, of course, Heidegger, where, where he sort of essentially argued that part of, his, part of the argument was that um, we, we can understand Heidegger as a kind of existentialist or providing a kind of framework of grounding for it, right? Um, and after that, Heidegger famously wrote... Um, I think was it um, will I be correctly correct me here was it um, a letter on humanism letter on humanism yeah yeah um, where he basically publicly rebuked um, Sartre um, and said that uh, he was not an existentialist and he was not a humanist he was not concerned primarily with you know these kinds of concerns of mortality and so on um, it was he was sort of trying to get at you know fundamental metaphysical questions in a certain way. Um, and I've never really been convinced by that. I mean, Heidegger, Heidegger can say it, right? But he, he can say it. But, you know, you read Being in Time or you read, you know, specifically this chapter. How is it that we kind of come to an understanding of nothingness for Heidegger? It's through the experience of anxiety, of boredom, of um, rebuke and so on, right? It's through these moods which we experience as very, you know, meaningful and important moods, um, which define, for Heidegger, um, define us and our relation to the world, right? Um, by attuning to anxiety in these moments where the world seems to sort of simultaneously impinge upon us, but also retreat from us, Um but it's by tuning to that that we experience or see the other sort of almost the other aspects of 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 beings, right? Um, we kind of, we kind of see them in it; they are revealed to us in a new light, right? Um, and so, given given this, given you know the emphasis in being on time on the idea of time and more, and it's in a sense mortality, right? Our our finitude, finitude. Um, Maybe Will can say something about this, but I, 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 I always, when I read Heidegger, I can't help but read him as, um, in some sense, at least speaking to the same concerns that many existentialists did, because, you know, it's so. Maybe, maybe this is part of why he has this turn, although later Heidegger is somewhere I'm not really familiar with that. But maybe this is part of that turn, right? Is, is this emphasis on human experience or, well, he wouldn't say human experience, right? He's, he prefers Dasein to sort of distinguish it in quite important ways, but. Our basic experience of many of these um, uh, moods and so on um, as the the access point for understanding these more fundamental um, aspects of reality. Um, and so for me, I can't help but read him in that way. But, you know, um, I don't know, Will, please, please tell me more. Please tell me more. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, you know, I joke a little bit when I say, because like the letter on humanism is like a pretty, a pretty hefty, I guess it's a critique, but there's one section and i just had to quickly pull it up of the letter on humanism that i that i really like that uh is sort of towards the end and it reads as long as philosophy merely busies itself with continually obstructing the possibility of admittance into the matter of thinking into the truth of being it stands beyond any danger of shattering against the hardness of that matter so in a sense uh, what Heidegger may say is that part of the problem with the framework of, and you know, and he'll he'll admit that sort of the letter on humanism 
ends or he'll admit in the letter on humanism that so I think the term is that uh, being in time ends sort of like in a blind alley sometimes in, in some senses. And in a sense, like being a nothingness does too for some folks. Um, uh, but I, I, I think that these, these ideas are, are, are interesting because I do find that there's something like strangely human about saying things like anxiety, boredom. Uh, these are not... <laughs> Uh, notions that exist purely ontologically, right? There's a social investment in these terms as well. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's why I struggle as a student with the letter on humanism. Um, but one way in which I guess Heidegger can escape it is that one of the fundamental tenets of humanism is that it it has sort of normative elements, right? And in this, you know, we have little show notes here, and you know, uh, I was talking about disability and all of this, and uh, Matt noted to me, "Well, does Heidegger want to have any sort of normative judgment?" I don't. He says that he doesn't think so, and I, I agree actually because uh, this is on page one fifty one of uh, the uh, the Macquarie uh, translation, uh, and. He basically makes the argument that uh, the Dasein is, in each case, one's self. So I'm just going to briefly read a section from Being in Time. Dasein is an entity which is, in each case, I myself. Its being is, in each case, mine. This definition indicates an ontologically constitutive state. But it does not, uh, but it does no more than indicate it. At the same time, it tells us ontically. That in each case, an I, not others, is this entity. And I think that sort of uh, assertion of, I don't even want to say radical subjectivity, but a sort of, um, I guess in a sense, privation is what limits the possibility of there being maybe a normalizing judgment, which I think would be part of the problem here. Um, and I... Look, Heidegger's a hard nut to crack, um, but I, I guess the the tension between Heidegger and Sartre uh, goes, I think, beyond just humanism. And I think Sartre returning to existentialism in existentialism is a humanism is more a response to the Marxists and the Catholics that were criticizing um, being in nothingness than any sort of uh, perceived critique uh, at the level of of humanism. Um, so, in, in that sense, I think sometimes these sorts of squabbles that exist in sort of the the contemporary history of philosophy can tell us more about the individual philosophers themselves. I think Letter on Humanism tells us more about uh, Heidegger than it does about sort of the. the sort of limitations of Sartre and the same goes for uh, existentialism is humanism. It tells us more about how Sartre views uh, being a nothingness, right? He, he takes issue with people who say, oh, I'm cursing. So now I must be an existentialist because I don't care about things or whatever. Um, and I think it tells us more about how these philosophers have digested the way in which the reading public has reflected upon these works. Um, 
and that's why I think all of these texts where they return are always just pure cope. <laughs> fascinating cope, right? It can be fascinating cope, but it's always cope. It's why both editions of like uh, Critique of Pure Reason have to be read. Maybe we can return here now to to the concept of anxiety um, in this in this text, right? Um, because it's really really central for for Heidegger in in this in this text, and um, specifically because he thinks this is this is one of our um, ways of experiencing, in a certain sense, or having revealed to us the nothing, right? Nothingness. Um, so maybe as a starting point, I, I can sort of set this up, and then I'm sure maybe maybe Craig or Adam have something to, to say about this. But um, here's here's one passage from um, what is metaphysics. Um, Heidegger writes: um, In anxiety, we say one feels ill at ease. What what is it that makes one feel ill at ease? We cannot say what it is um, before which we one feels ill at ease. As a whole, it is so for one. All things and we ourselves sink into indifference. This, however, is not in the sense of mere disappearance. Rather, in this very receding, things turn towards us. The receding of beings as a whole that closes in on us and anxiety oppresses us. We can get no hold on things. In a slipping away of beings, uh, only this no hold on things comes over us and remains. Anxiety reveals nothing, and then he then goes on to say how we sort of hover in this, we sort of hover in this moment of anxiety, right? Um, and it's this strange mood where um, it simultaneously seems to be this awareness of um, sort of, in a certain sense, this so t- totality of beings which move in a strange, strange direction. They move away from us in a certain way, but also close in, and that's sort of that strange panic i suppose of it and um it's it's also this indeterminateness right um this is something he says um just only shortly before that on the technically on the previous page where he he points out that um, if you've ever experienced any of these moments of real you know anxiety um he says uh it's a peculiar calm pervades it and anxiety is indeed anxiety in the face of but not in the face of this or that thing it's never about this particular thing or that particular thing. Um, it's always necessarily kind of um, indeterminate, vague. It's never particular things which we are aware of or, or made to, to to be anxious about. And it's why you've ever had it, or you've, you know, talk to someone who's having a, you know one of these anxious sort of moods, um, and you ask them what's wrong, or you ask yourself what's wrong. Um, there's no possible answer to that question, right? And so this is possibly partly why I get this sort of existentialist reading of Heidegger, which, you know, fine, I'm probably wrong on that. It's okay. Um, <laughs> but um, as a starting point, anxiety is interesting, right? The thing that's important and the thing that can escape us in our interpretation of anxiety, and Krell points this out early on, I, I think I said this earlier, but there is a self-aware equivocation on what anxiety means here, right? Sure. And... Heidegger gives us a non-exhaustive list of, of the ways that negation can appear in our life. Yeah. But when he's talking about anxiety and angst, he's talking about something very specific. And the thing that's most specific about it, you kind of brushed past just a moment ago, Matt, is that within this sort of low ebb tension of anxiety, um, there is this pervasive calm which comes up through it. And one of the ways that we can maybe better elucidate it is if you're familiar with Zen Buddhism and the practice of Zen Buddhism and sitting meditation, where sitting there, we let thoughts arise and come to pass. 
very early on in my my training as a philosopher. I actually spent a few days at a Zen monastery nice. way out in the middle of rural Western Pennsylvania. And I distinctly remember many of the specific meditations that we did over that three or four day week. And some of the things that we did really resonated with what I had been studying in Heidegger. Yeah. There was one specific walking meditation which we did, which involved just walking about outside in the field. And if something were to capture our notice, like a leaf, a butterfly, a piece of garbage, the instructions for the practice were to stay with that for about three seconds and breathe through the experience. Breathe through the experience of that capturing your notice and then allow it to drift away. Allow that experience to come to pass. Let go of that conscious awareness and then move on. So there was this kind of like flanora kind of activity involved, you know, where we were just hitting like different little nodes um, in the garden where we were walking. But I think it was really important. The connection that I want to make there is amidst our being in the world, being thrown in the world and seeing these other beings, a leaf, a shoe, a driveway, mm -hmm. and allowing those things to occupy our conscious mind, and then in letting them go, this was somewhat of an actualization of what Heidegger's kind of leaning towards here. And I remember the following day after doing that meditation, one of the meditations that they had me do was to go out in the garden where they had this little fireplace, and I was to burn all of the garbage. But the instruction was not to let my attention drift from the burning until the garbage was completely burned out. That was a very profound experience. The day after I was finished with the Zen retreat, I slept for 18 hours straight. The, 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 the intensity of concentration that was involved in that experience yeah. and, the, and the intentionality required was very profound. And it, it's interesting because I think there is an implicit ethics in Heidegger. Like here we are, you know, behind the scenes having this little chat that uh, our listeners don't, um, don't get to see. But I, I think what's at stake here is this turning towards the, the low ebb of anxiety. And what, what happens is for Heidegger, without going too deeply into what I know of being in time, is that in our attunement to the nothing, we have this sort of encounter with it, and we can't grasp its total truth. For, for Heidegger, there's always some errancy in the truth. But as I said, in, in the act of attunement, something is revealed and something is concealed. And that which is revealed falls back upon us, and it gives us a different quality of being, a different quality in the way that we engage the world. Yeah. And for me, those things are just inextricably connected. And it's, it's interesting, right, the, the way that for Heidegger, um, the, these sort of moods, as he puts it sometimes, are so intimately bound up with um, the, way, the way that, you know, the world is revealed to us and, and it's various sort of these various aspects of being, I suppose. Um, and it's an interesting, um, I, I think one, one, one thing to maybe, maybe say here is that, um, I think Heidegger wants, does also want to distinguish between a kind of a low ebb of anxiety, um, which presumably he would want to connect up with sort of the idea of finitude and death and so on. Um, and these particular moments, which he says are pretty rare, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, they don't come up very often and, you know, 
all that, but they're important. And it's in these moments of particular um, acute anxiety and a sort of attunement to that um, that he thinks we can reveal an understanding of nothingness, right? Of this sort of repelling, pulling away thing. That that's right. Yeah, they 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 seem to work at least you know in terms of our own individual being kind of work in a tandem. The the nothing, yeah. the occurrence of the nothing, is always already present to us. That that sense of coming to pass is always there. But there are these incidental ruptures in which we get to see, like, whoa, there it is. Then it's yeah. really up to us what we do in terms of attuning ourselves to it. Yeah, Heidegger is definitely following uh, Kant in here. He's not trying to say what we're going to get to the absolute, we're not we're going to get to the to the in itself. We're simply trying to attune ourselves such that we can properly find ourselves in in the midst of of of, of being in the midst of being a being and making itself questionable. There's something meditative about anxiety, but it's it's an access point. It's what in later works Heidegger would sort of say something that maybe he would say it's that's which that which calls us to thinking, and calls thinking is is this rupture in nature of being itself and as you to situate yourself within it. The sense in which this anxiety feels a little bit like a little bit like a Sartrean nausea. I think I'm coming on to uh, to your guys' side here. It does feel a bit weird because it's this sort of break of it's it's a break of dissolution in in which you find yourself because when everything is dissolved, you're finally able to actually sort of you know to go around us about it, be here now kind of thing. It's it's the pure immediacy, and that's where when you sort of dissolve all this, where you can properly situate yourself, and then you can articulate your own cares in a much more attuned way. You can you can simply it may be in a way care better in terms of how you want yourself to right. how, how the unfolding of, of your own questioning of your own existence plays out before itself. And because of this essential finitude of being and of existing, you can only really uh, unfold this question before yourself by a mode of transcendence by which you enter this gap, this, this, this rupture. He has this very weird conclusion, which is that, uh, Hegel was right. <laughs> Which I'm sure you End are. End of episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, he doesn't quite say being. that, though, does he, Adam? <laughs> so what he says is, pure being and, no- and pure nothing are therefore the same. This proposition of Hegel's uh, is correct. Being and the nothing do and belong both. to <laughs> Not because both, from the point of view of the Hegelian concept of thought, <laughs> agree in their indeterminateness and immediacy, but rather because being itself is essentially finite and reveals itself only in the transcendence of Dasein, which is held out into the nothing. Fundamentally, there's this anxiety, this, this nothingness, this, this annihilation, which is the repulsion of, of not thinking and towards thinking. This, this fundamental break in, in, in being isn't, isn't, isn't tied to, with, by Heidegger to anything logical. It's pre-logical. There's a fundamental pain of orientation, whereas for Hegel, really... Uh, I th- I'm sort of ripping off uh, Catherine Malibu and Zizek, as I always do, but sort of there's a fundamental pain to logic itself. Logic itself has a structural developmental process that manifests itself uh, as pain in its own sort of uh, motion of, of self-collapsing, where it can never fully be purely identical to itself. The pure being in itself is never fully attained, and this is painful for logic as it is painful for us when we realise we can never fully attain this this ideal uh identity this this ego ideal i guess to put it in freudian terms yes oh actually logic is also painful (laughs) go ahead will yeah i think that the, the the crucial notion here is that like being is finite and like specifically reveals 
itself in the transcendence of the da sign, which is then like held out in the face of the nothing. And and I think that's a step away, at least from the Hegel quote that's just above it. I, I and in a sense, I think maybe Adam, you should take a peek at what uh, Sartre has to say about the uh, Heidegger and his approach and then Sartre's approach to Hegel in being in nothingness. Because I think you'll see that Sartre's at least a little bit closer to, to Hegel, I think, in, in the sense that, um, the, that a pure being in itself is, A, sort of wrapped up in notions of bad faith, um, and, uh, you know, pure, it's about, I guess, sort of like, some readings have it sort of a balance between the two and so on. I, I, but I think, I think you'd, you'd, you'd be more sympathetic with Sartre there. Um, but I, I, I think that one, one no- notion here that's interesting is that if being uh, is like the encompassing question of metaphysics, then sort of nothing then sort of wraps around the entirety of metaphysics. And then that brings us back to the very initial question of the uh the paper itself which is what does science have to say about nothing and well they have nothing to say about it, it, it they're they're too it, it 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 must be for the sake of their own disciplines like concerned with matter and that's why this sort of higher science or lower science depending on what you're looking for if you're looking for armature or something that can span across it all uh is is what Heidegger is searching for. It's sort of the phantasm that runs through his work, the sort of uh, need to find this. I think the, the quality of inquiry needs to be addressed here too, and especially amidst the comparisons to other philosophers like Hegel and Sartre. I think one thing that's important to keep in mind with Heidegger is the way that he addresses the notion of totality or absolution. I don't think it's something that we get um, if we are to embody his ethics. He says here that with the fundamental mood of anxiety, we have arrived at that occurrence in human existence in which the nothing is revealed and from which it must be interrogated. And then he says, how is it with the nothing? And then in the response to the question, which, is, which kind of fin- finishes up the essay, he'll basically say something like, the kind of questioning or the kind of interrogation that, that happens on his terms is one in which we are constantly delivered back into the question. We're actually existing within the question of existence against nothingness in a way in which we cannot grasp onto facts in the way that we we do with science. It's this attunement and this this turning towards anxiety. It reveals to us something, a kind of truth, and then going to being in time, but something remains concealed once again. And so there's a level of uncertainty with which the task of inquiry completes itself, or doesn't complete itself, rather. I definitely disagree with, with the method here, because what he does is he sort of says that he starts from sort of this very Kantian assumption that, well, it's, it's Kantian, it goes back to Aristotle, Every, everyone has it, apart from like a few philosophers, that uh, the, ground, the ground of thinking is, is non-contradiction. And therefore, if we think, and therefore, if you think about where where thinking comes from, where it comes into questioning something, and it makes its differentiations, its negations, it's not, you know, not this, not that. 
we need to think about where this, this operation of the intellect uh, comes from, which is, he thinks, creation does not come, come from the nothing. Fundamentally, this, this repulsion that is being felt at the, the beginning of thinking, in which he thinks being and nothing uh, come to be the same in the unfolding of each other, I, I, for me, that is contradiction. It's the contradiction of finitude versus the, the infinite indeterminacy of, of the nothing that will eventually annihilate, uh, well, not annihilate, but annihilate everything. And I, I wonder whether this is a, a bit of a limitation on Heidegger here in terms of the, the very restricted notion of thinking that he opposes upon thought itself, only to put something behind it. But at the same time, I think maybe like Heidegger would agree with this, we are still thinking through this. We are being called to think about the nothing by its absence. And every time we get behind it to this so-called behind thing, it's only for a presupposition. But by thinking through it, that's, that's how we actually get it. And it's, there's no, it's not really much retroactivity in Heidegger's methods here that's explicit. It's only if implicit. Oh, look, we have arrived at this nothing. But we don't arrive at the idea. We arrived at the idea it was all, already always there. But for some reason, this doesn't inscribe any a logic of retroactivity in, into nothing itself. So on, on sort of a metaphysical, logical level, I think there's a, I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, it's a good attempt and pat him on the, on the fucking head, but yeah, this is where my disagreements are with, 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 the, with the piece as, as, as we find it. But doesn't, doesn't he at one point, near, near the start of a chapter, you know, you said that um, it's this idea of, you know, the law of non-contradiction, but isn't it right at the start where he says that if we, if we hold too closely to this idea, we'll never get anywhere in trying to um, understand um, in, in understanding this question or, or, or properly posing it. That's right. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah right, where he, where he yeah. says, um, it's, it's we need to be able to move beyond what logic supposedly tells us and see what other ground you might have to investigate it and then come mm. back with an answer. Oh, yeah. He, he, he confines the intellect behind this veil of non-contradiction at the same time as he tries to uh, elaborate a pre-logical uh, version of, of annihilation. So he's still right. pre-logical, which is where I'm, I'm not quite sure how how that works as much it feels like there's kind of this seeping back retroactive sweeping backwards of the intellect into its own comprehension and maybe this is just a starting point you need to go through in that case i i, I don't have any any objections but it's well that's precisely the point that deleuze critiques him on by and it happens in difference and repetition in chapter three where he says you know heidegger sub, uh, asserts this subjective presupposition of this pre-philosophical reality that exists and you know heidegger's making that move like yeah like okay looks like non-contradiction but how are we ever to get to the problem i mean we can read him charitably after that but i think adam you're right to go after that you know in the same way that that deleuze does which um what does it get us well i i think the one thing we want to take from heidegger is the question of what are the grounds for the conditions of the possibility of knowing anything at all great we want to keep that question but then going back and saying, look, there's a dimension of reality that's pre-philosophical, buzz, wrong answer. I think our task as philosophers is to unearth all of those presuppositions. And so uh, on that basis, um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you. I want to thank everybody for joining us for our first episode of 2021. If you'd like to support us, join us on Patreon. This year, the cast of Acid Horizon intends to do some reading groups. One of them that we're going to do is on Deleuze's Difference and Repetition. This feature will be available for patrons subscribing at the $5 level and above. If you are interested, please subscribe. 
In the meantime, connect with us on social media. Most of us are active on Twitter these days, a little bit on Instagram, but we would love for you to join our community somehow. The next episode that we intend to release is going to be on imposter syndrome and being a sued. This is shaping up to be an interesting episode, so we hope that you stay with us this year. So until then, stay safe.